Welcome to Rolling Stone Music Now. We have a special thing this episode. Instead of what we're listening to, we're going to do what we're reading. Yeah. Yeah, with none other than Rob Sheffield, who has just written a book called On Bowie. Is that what you're reading, Nathan? That's what I'm reading. What are the chances of you being here in the studio at the same time that we're talking about? Wow. So this just came out. I feel like I've seen the whole beginning, middle, and end of this book, the process of doing this book, because I, I kind of have, because you, yeah. you started writing it in, in, well, tell me the story. You started writing it right shortly after I started after writing Bowie's it the death. night he died, yes. Right. It was one of those situations, it's funny, the night that David Bowie died happened to be the night of an award show, the Golden Globes, which I love because it's the most ridiculous, Who meaningless, and absurd of, of award shows, and I was planning to be up late writing about it, and uh, got a text from a friend at two in the morning saying, did you see the news? Which is never a good text to get at two in the morning. And that's when I saw the news. And it was uh, completely mind-blowing. And so shocking because David Bowie had just put out an album two days, three days earlier. That was Sunday night, and he put out the album on Friday. Which you had been listening to already that day, all weekend. Yes, listening to it all weekend. So it was really intense. And I just started writing my tribute for Rolling Stone. And... Then just kept writing after that. You know, I sent that in at dawn, and yet, like, I just couldn't stop. And I talked to my editor on the phone that morning, and she called, and she said, what if you just did a Bowie book super quick? Just write it in a month. Whatever you have at the end of the month, that's the book. And it uh, just kind of poured out from that night. I I feel like just knowing... You, Rob, for the years that we've known each other, I uh-huh. I know how you work, and I and I it's I think it's a little deceiving that this book when the it's a it's a fact that this book was written in a month, <laughs> but the fact is you've had a lot of this book in your head for many years. Absolutely, absolutely. It's you know the relationship that you have with the star that you love, like David Bowie, is you know he's constantly following you around everywhere you go your whole life, and so it's amazing that for David Bowie, loving him my whole life, I guess has been sort of the what goes into this book. It's, I, it's a thing where these are songs that have changed for me over the years. Before we met up today, I was talking to John Dolan, who said that he actually remembers talking to you 15 years ago. And he asked you if, what kind of book you want to write. And you, and you said something to the effect of, like, I want to do something about, like, the cultural germ that is David Bowie. Wow. Do you have any memory of that? I don't. <laughs> I, but I'm sure it was true. <laughs> you really it's, got a pretty good memory. I, well, so. you know, as, as my editor pointed out when she was talking about the idea for this book, she said, every single book you write, you squeeze in a Bowie chapter, even when it has nothing <laughs> to do go with, with the it. rest of the book. Yeah. <laughs> so she's like, maybe I'll take the Bowie chapter and just make that the whole book. So that's basically, it's true. He's someone I've been obsessed with ever since I was a little kid. Someone who always seemed so weird and so free and so funny and so serious and so threatening and challenging and ambitious and yet always playful and always always pushing on to the next thing. And that was something that I've always found really inspiring about him. Well, I just finished the book and I, I loved it. Thank and you. And one thing that's indisputable is just how many different things you like. You, you just found so many stories in David Bowie, you know, and I learned so much. You, you spent time on like uh, Peter Schilling's uh, Major <laughs> Tom, which is amazing. And I learned so much just from that. <laughs> Along with all these other things about, like, you know, uh, just the moon coming from the Pacific Ocean, which I didn't know. <laughs> well, it's, and, it's 
more poetically <laughs> That's true a little more poetic. Like this. Okay, true. but but uh, I, I thought just for today we might go through yes. some of like the moments you see on, and and you're so, so many Bowie moments. You and you go full all in on so many of these moments, and as you do with so much of your writing, like kind of bring along the enthusiasm, bring along the reader along in, in into your enthusiasm for these moments. So well, it's funny because everybody's got their different Bowie. You know? Right. And after he died, and we were all talking about Bowie so much in those days. And I kept learning so much about different aspects of David Bowie that I'd never paid any attention to that, that you know, were like the founding Bowie obsession for so many of my friends. I swear to everybody is a different gateway drug. Right. And, and he's just so, was so exceptional in that, like, you can just follow that thread into so deeply. Absolutely. I mean, there's, there's so many things, different things you yeah. can find. One of the seminal Bowie moments that you talk about is his appearance on the Top of the Pops in 1972. Yeah, uh, uh, July 6, 1972. Ju- July 6, 1972, where he's doing Starman. weird how David Bowie was so obscure going into this. He was the guy who had a one-hit wonder kind of record three years earlier, Space Oddity, which has been completely forgotten in the three years between Space Oddity and Starman. It's 1972. He hasn't had a hit in years. He goes on top of the pops to do his new song, Starman, which is the last song that he wrote for his album. It's like an an afterthought. Yeah. Yeah, Uh, His album is called uh, Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars, and he gets out there. Uh, wearing his platform boots and his rainbow-colored jumpsuit and his blue guitar and his two different colored eyes and his his crimson mane of hair. And he does this song about an alien. And you can see the kids in the studio are dancing to it. They're the kids who show up to Top of the Pops to dance in the background while they play the pop hits. And the rest of the stuff they've been hearing that day is like the Partridge family and Glitter <laughs> and you know, Gary Glitter. Sweet, and baby, sweet. right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So David Bowie is going up against the very best of, of pop 1972. <laughs> and you can see that the kids who are dancing to this are like, wow, this is kind of strange. This <laughs> kooky, kooky guy. And it's amazing how so many, every future rock star in the British Isles was watching. It's an amazing list that you, you mentioned yeah. in the book. Yeah, among- It's funny that they all have all talked about as a touchstone for, for all these years. Bono and... and uh, I love that. Yeah. You know, Bono uh, says, you know, you Americans had your space program, but we had our own spaceman. <laughs> and he had an Irish mother. I love that. <laughs> I, love, I love that Bono, you know, he's watching this in Dublin and he's seeing something. And, you know, Morrissey's watching it in Manchester and seeing something totally different. And it's really funny how everybody was watching this. And I used to think it was weird. Why was everybody watching the same TV show at Thursday night? And... I was talking about this with the guys from Duran Duran backstage last year, and they said, oh, come on, you got to remember, England only had two TV channels, and some nights there'd be three. So everybody watched Top of the Pops every week, whether they cared or not. It was the kind of thing that you watched expecting nothing from it. And then when David Bowie comes on, it was completely a thunderbolt that absolutely transfixed all these people. And there was this amazing boom of English rock stars who were all like the kids who were watching Top of the Pops that night. Just looking at this on YouTube, and I found myself like YouTubing throughout your book. But yeah, imagining half the country watching something yeah. so incredible, amazing, and arty and bizarre, and just it is kind of overwhelming. So. Yeah, and so and so out of line with the rest of the program, and so you know, colorful and playful compared to everything that was so drab in, right. in pop culture at the time. No offense to Gary Glitter. None, well, <laughs> none to Gary Glitter. 
the next piece we're going to talk about is a pretty remarkable version of Young Americans that he did on a, a share variety show. The 70s were the heyday of variety shows, which is where somebody would host a show every week. There'd be special guests, and they'd sing and dance and do the latest hits and, and do uh, silly sketches and some audience participation, and Rip Taylor would show up to do some <laughs> prop comedy magic tricks. Uh, it was this beloved antique showbiz tradition of the 70s, and Bowie comes on the Cher show, and they do Young Americans, and it starts out as a fairly straight rendition of Young Americans, as straight as it could be, considering it involves Bowie and Cher. And then they go into this insane medley of oldies where they're usually just doing a line or two of the song and then going on to the next one. So, you know, it's so nothing. It sweeps like a song, song, blue. Everybody knows one is the loneliest number to do run, run, run. And it just goes, there is no rhyme or reason, no historical pattern to this medley at all. Bowie and Cher are both thinking, wow, this is really, really insane. I can't believe we're doing this. They're, they're having a hard time keeping a straight face, and they are Bowie and Cher. Do you do talk about throughout the book about how like Bowie kind of, he did get off of that like showbiz side, too, oh, that old-fashioned kind of like, you talk about the Dinah Shore show appearance, and, and yeah. of course the big Crosby, little, little drummer boy. Uh, a beautiful go- moment. Beautiful, yes. beautiful moment. I remember that moment from the yeah. late 70s. I guess this share performance was actually it was was this the year that he actually claimed not to remember any yeah. of in 1975. Yeah, right. watching this clip and listening to the performance, it's pretty. It's plausible. Easy to, yeah, <laughs> plausible. If if you're gonna not remember a year of your life, this would seem to be the year where that's gonna happen. And he's wearing a suit that he got at at Sears. He was so proud of, you know, just finding this suit in a department store. Nothing couture. Nothing. Up market to and go on the share show. He's going to dress. It up. looks amazing with yes. the orange hair pushed back yeah. with the sunglasses. Yeah. Well, thank God it's still on YouTube, so we can remember it. And it, uh, it's funny that that when Lady Gaga did her Bowie tribute, which people thought was ridiculous and absurd and 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 disrespectful, because she was doing a tribute to this performance and because this performance is so unknown, people couldn't figure out what Gaga was doing, but she was doing just, you know, a line of one Bowie song, another line of a Bowie song, and throwing it together into this absolutely Yeah, that's, that's a great magic. point. You're right, sorry, but people thought it was, you know, it was like, oh, so showbiz, you know, Bowie yeah. wouldn't have loved it when he had that whole side of it. Yeah, yeah. I, I personally think Bowie would have loved it. Right. That's just me. I agree. <laughs> another one you talk about is, uh, oh, we, we kind of skipped a year. We're going out of chronological order, but that's all right. That's all right. Uh, We're outside the space-time continuum we when we talk about David Bowie. We are. In the uh, Bowie continuum. A very important Santa Monica show, which you talk about as, as from 1973, where you talk about kind of as a moment when a lot of uh, Americans got Bowie, or kind of stands for that in the book. Uh, yeah. And he was doing five years. This is the first... Spires from Mars tour of across yeah. America. And it's a tour that was not going so well. He was going through the Midwest, playing to a lot of empty places. There's one famous show where hardly anybody showed up, so he invited them to come up and sit on the edge of the stage while he, you know, sang to them and eventually fell off the stage drunk. It was, it was a difficult tour. And then <laughs> you, come, I think you quoted what he would say. What, what did he... Uh, St. Louis, Louis was, was not a Ziggy town. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then he gets to Santa Monica and... It's really funny because you can hear the audience change as you listen to the entire concert. 
the beginning, everybody's just clapping politely. It's a, it's a fairly subdued crowd. They just, they come out to the show that's in town that night. They've never heard of this David Bowie guy before. They've never heard any of these songs before. And halfway through the show, they're screaming like it's full-on Beatlemania. It's, and you can hear that change happen. And you can hear Bowie respond to it. And you can hear the band respond to it. And just that connection between Bowie and the crowd is, is so beautiful. And you can really hear it happen. It's remarkable. And you call out poor Mick Ronson being a little off, but it not mattering at all. Yeah, it's, it's beautiful. You know, Mick Ronson, the the, the true unsung musical genius hero of those early Bowie records, someone who was classically trained, very musically literate. He wrote all the orchestral arrangements. He was someone who was really in charge of the musical nuts and bolts details. And yet at this concert, even Mick Ronson is so excited he can't sing in tune. That's a big deal for Mick Ronson. It's a beautiful moment. And for people who haven't looked at some of these clips, one thing that is obvious is just how important Mick Ronson and the band were to Bowie during yeah. this period. I mean, you really get that sense and you know, them singing, you know, harmonies, you know, with their arms around each other and, yeah. and what just what a freaking awesome band they were. You know, yeah. they, he really was a band, part of a band in those early years and then Absolutely. went on to other things. Okay, I insisted that we we talk about this one demo track that you mentioned uh which so which you good. turned me on to when i read this book it's an alternate version of candidate right from yeah. uh the diamond dogs diamond sessions. dogs sessions it's like you always hope when you you hear a new like demo or bootleg on some box set that it's like going to be as good as a great artist's great stuff and this is one that struck me which is i was amazed by It's an incredible song. It's called Candidate. Nobody really knows why he didn't finish it, but it was never even bootlegged. It just sat there in the vault, just gathering dust for 16 years. Anybody else in rock and roll not only would have released this song, it would have been, you know, the foundation of a legend. It's that good. But for Bowie, it just didn't fit the concept of his album, so he just left it there. And he never even really gave it a title. Candidate is the name of another song on Diamond Dogs, which is just the middle of the awesome Sweet Thing Candidate, Sweet Thing Reprise medley, which is takes up most of side one. And which, so this demo kind of gets confused with that, which yeah. is probably some reason more people haven't heard it. Yeah, yeah. and they, they really, they only share one line, so it's a shame this doesn't have its own title, but it's a completely fantastic Bowie, just doing this really menacing walk through the city, and it's amazing because it's it's not a very flashy song. It's just you know acoustic guitar, piano, rhythm section, and yet he's he's singing it. It's it's so incredibly sinister and creepy and powerful and seductive, and it just like kind of captures like something about the essence of Bowie too, and that he's checking himself out in mirrors and it's yeah. this street level performance of like walk him walking down the street. Yeah, yeah. extremely strange reference to the Grateful Dead in the first <laughs> verse. <He's> like, <laughs> figure that out. Inside every candidate is the Grateful Dead. And it's like, what, huh? <laughs> and, you know, it's just the kind of thing. We have no idea what it was like to be David Bowie at that time, but glimpses into his mind from that period are uh, impressive. In later years, he didn't have any idea what it was like <laughs> yeah. to be David Bowie during that time. But. He, he had this wonderful quote once, I honestly have no idea what I thought between 1975 and 1977. <laughs> it's kind of amazing. At least he's honest enough to admit it. Right. 
Right. We have to put on this list the uh, his performance of TVC15 from Live Aid in 1985, right? Yeah. Which is just killing. Really great. With this band with Thomas Dolby on keyboards. This is a couple of years after she blinded me with science. And he wasn't touring at the time. He put this band together just to play Live Aid and drilled them in this really like amazing medley. And one of the beautiful things about Bowie at Live Aid is he has this gigantic quiff. His hair is about like a couple uh, of feet in the air. And he got Freddie Mercury's boyfriend to do his hair that day. Oh, uh, good call. Yes. Freddie Mercury's boyfriend was one of London's most beloved rock and roll hairstylists. And it's, it's kind of funny that although, you know, Queen clearly stole the day at Live Aid and, and U2 and there are all these classic performances from Live Aid that everybody remembers, but David Bowie doing TVC15 and Heroes, just an incredibly beautiful Live Aid moment. We're going to end with one of his last songs. But it's the title song from his theatrical production, right. Lazarus, which is really weird, something he worked very hard on in the last couple of years of his life, and nobody really knew why at the time. It seemed like a strange thing when, you know, Andy Green, Rolling Stones, like most erudite Bowie scholar, he, he mentioned that David Bowie was doing this off-Broadway downtown theater production. I thought, well, that's a very strange use of his time, isn't it? And we went to see it in, in uh, December, just like a couple of us going, you know, just to see if there were any canceled tickets that we could, you know, pick up at the last minute because it was sold out months in advance. And uh, unbelievably beautiful, strange intimate theater production with all these Bowie songs, uh, mostly old ones that were not so well-known, a, a few pretty well-known ones like Changes and Heroes, but a lot of obscure ones. And then this new song, beginning it, called Lazarus, which is just unbelievably beautiful. And at the time, nobody knew that David Bowie was sick, that he was ill, that he was looking at the end of his life. And it's, it's really remarkable to go back in retrospect and think about this music that he was composing at, at that moment, knowing that it was the end. Look up here, I'm in heaven. I've got scars. Well, Rob, thank you so much for coming on and, and talking about all these Bowie moments. And there are about 500 more in this <laughs> book, which I encourage any Bowie fan to, you, to pick up. Thank you. What's your favorite Bowie song? My favorite Bowie song? You know, Starman is up there. Life on Mars oh is probably... God, I mean, all of Hunky song. Dory is just kind of a... It's, it's the Bowie album I, I go back to. It's, it's for me, that's record, a perfect right? record. Rob Sheffield. Thank you, Nathan. Thanks again. <laughs> Rob Sheffield's On Bowie is out this week. You can get it at Amazon or anywhere you get your books. For our second segment today, we're going to talk about the state of concert security in the wake of the shooting of Christina Grimmie and the mass shooting in uh, Orlando, not to mention a recent shooting in New York City at a uh, hip-hop show, which involved a rapper named Troy Ave. I'm here with Rolling Stone contributing editor Steve Knopper, who is calling in from uh, Denver. Hey, Steve. Hey, Nathan. How are you? All right. Good to hear from you. Likewise. Um, 
Thanks for calling in. We're, you recently wrote a piece about concert security uh, for RollingStone.com. I think w- one thing I, I wanted to make sure that we address today is that a lot of people don't think that anything can be done with concert security. A lot of people think, okay, it's really just about gun control, which is true. It's, it's a huge factor. But the fact is, a lot of people in the concert business have been talking about this for months, especially after the, the Bataclan shootings in November. And there actually are some things that people are talking about and are being done. Can you talk about some of the things that that, that managers and artists are doing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, at the very basic level, people just want something done. So I I think that the easiest thing that you can do, although it's costly and it's hard to do on a a smaller concert level, but, but if you have the resources for a venue or for an artist is to boost security and just have more trained, hopefully armed security guards at every concert. And this happened, for example, there, there was a big radio show in Buffalo, New York recently, a couple of days after the, the horrible Christina Grimmie tragedy. tragedy. And Megan Trainer and, and uh, Iggy Azalea, I believe, and some others were performing there. And um, the, the radio station that was organizing this, uh, KISS FM, and, and the artists and their management all said, we're not going on unless we boost security. And they, they all you know got together and they said, in the wake of this Christina Grimmie tragedy, we, we absolutely need more security. So it was kind of a rare example in the concert industry, in the music industry in general, of sort of you know all the entities coming together for the same goal and realizing they had to make a change. And so they did that. In that right. case, they boosted security. It was by 20% or something. Right. In addition to that, more metal detectors, more pat-downs, more just kind of general awareness in in security and and you know ultimately better training of security people i think we're going to see more and more of this in the future i think that you you were just talking about going as far back as as the bataclan tragedy from from last fall but this goes all the way back to much earlier i mean we're talking about the the dime bag daryl horrible assassination in in 2004 and other this is where the dime bag daryl who's the guitarist of pantera was actually shot on stage while during a show Right. Correct. Correct. And, and, you know, I did a story back then and many others did too, uh, you know, where we interviewed all the people in the concert business and said, come on guys, what's going to change now? And they all said, oh yeah, we'll make all these changes. And they never did. Right. And And now, and now recently, sorry to cut you off, but the Christina Grimmie shooting definitely made a lot of people in the music world, especially concerned about this because she was actually in a mid-level venue and she was doing an autograph signing, which is something a lot of artists do. Yes. Ironically, probably the the shows that are the safest or have the best security are the big arena shows. You know, a lot of people might think yeah. might get nervous about going to a huge show at the Garden, thinking, oh, it's a big target at Madison Square Garden, thinking, oh, or the Staples Center, thinking it's a big target or there's a bigger chance of something happening. But the fact is, those are shows that have lots of security and metal detectors. Um, the shows that maybe artists are more focused on are probably like the mid-level or lower-level shows where, the you know, obviously, the, usually the security is maybe one guy at the door. Yeah, no, that's I think that's absolutely right. I mean, for a few reasons, you know, and we saw that in the Bataclan. I mean, it was an, it was only one example, but, you know, the terrorists tried to cause mayhem and death at a soccer stadium um, and did not, did not succeed because the soccer stadium had better security procedures. You know, and they were much more sadly, horribly successful at a small club, you know, which didn't have the resources or, or the policies to, to be able to really, you know, protect the security of its fans quite as well. 
So, yeah, I mean, I think since the Bataclan, um, the concert industry has come together and said, we have to make a change. Or I should say the live entertainment event industry. Um, and they have made changes like SeaWorld and Disneyland and NFL stadiums have, have considerably boosted security. Um, but not so much, you know, the small clubs and the small theaters. Those guys are still kind of at the same point where they were. And I think that's what you're going to see change now, because I'm here when I talk to sources in the industry, I'm hearing more urgency than I did, for example, in 2004 after Dimebag Daryl. Even after the Bataclan, you know, I, I talked to many people in the in the for a story for Rolling Stone. Um, I talked to many people in the concert business and they were still saying, you know, yeah, we can make these changes, but we don't want to because it would wind up raising your ticket prices. Right. You know, and and, and they were still saying that as recently is then I'm not hearing that I'm hearing a little of that, but I'm not hearing that quite as much anymore after the Orlando events. I think people, artists are scared. And right. I think artists are now starting to approach their managers and their promoters and saying, we are not going to play these places unless changes are made. And, you know, when it comes from artists and if they're serious about it, changes will be made. Well, you said you, one of the people you talked to was the tour manager for the Foo Fighters, um, who you right. said made some, some demands before they went on a tour recently. Can you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the Foo Fighters, and the, this guy, Gus Brandt, is the tour manager not only for the Foo Fighters, but also for Pharrell, and he's the co-manager of Blink-182, who are, are, the, are performing this summer in, in arenas and so forth. And he said that he's been hearing from all of those acts basically saying what I just said, which is we are demanding more changes in security. We want more. Blink-182 is the only one of those three that I believe is out on the road currently, and they're making ultimatums. They're, they're saying, you know, we're not going to do this unless you work with us to have more security. And, and it's coming from both ends. You know, the promoters and the venues are being asked, and, and it's being demanded of them that they boost the security, and the artists are agreeing to bring along more security that they pay for on the tour with them. There was one other little change that I've heard about that I, I thought was significant. I mean, again, you know, on some level, it, it's true. I mean, there's, there's no way that a club that maybe like a 500 person capacity is going to be, you know, safe from somebody like with a machine gun who really wants to get in. But one thing that came up in the wake of the Troy Ave shooting in uh, New York City, which happened in a VIP area backstage, was that often there's a different set of standards for people coming in through the backstage area and coming in through the front door. Did you uh, learn anything about that? Yeah, I mean, that was definitely a, a bit of an isolated example. I mean, that's not something that happens commonly. Right. Um, but nonetheless, I mean, in, in this age of, of terrorism, where every bad guy is, is you know, looking for an opening, um, I think that the concert business and the, and the event business wants to close those loopholes as well. Right. So there, there's this group called the Event Safety Alliance, and they've been working on this, all these problems for a while. And they, they say that's one of their emphasis points. They're saying that everyone at a venue, from the actual star of the show, to the manager, to the people who work at the place, to the stagehands, certainly to the fans, is going to have to go through a security check from now on at, at most major venues. Right. So that's something that uh, that's being discussed for sure. Right. Um, well, Steve, thanks for the insight. I mean, I, I would say, you know, just as a showgoer, I'm a little philosophical about this in the sense that, like, I you know, I there really is only so much that you can truly worry about this stuff. But at the same time, there's obviously people want to feel as if they're doing everything they can on a reasonable level. 
Um, do you feel like kind of we're going to get to that point where people are feeling like, okay, this is, this is kind of the baseline that we can do. We just want to make sure that all the loopholes are closed. Yeah, I mean, I think we are getting to that point. And after the Bataclan happened, um, you know, I talked to one prominent agent who said, if you're at a club and a whole army of terrorists is storming the gates with Kalashnikovs, some extra metal detectors aren't necessarily going to help. And so, you know, I do think, despite what we're saying and all this stuff is good and we're going to get to the point where, where we're maxing out on security and so forth, we're getting to the appropriate level. I do think that, you know, there's other issues that come into play. There's gun control issues and mental health issues and all the other stuff that that the media is talking about. For sure. The last piece of advice that I saw from one of these groups that seemed to make sense is just that people need to pay attention in the sense that in New York City, there's the campaign. If you see something, say something, you know, just be aware, you know, if you see something happening, you know, speak up. Yeah, and that comes up a lot. I mean, and also, remember, we're talking about a population of drunk people at, you know, late at night. <laughs> it's it's a pretty unique population. And are these people really going to be as aware as they possibly could be, you know, with, with right. the Foo Fighters rocking them out or something or whatever? Right. You know, so so it's definitely a unique set of set of challenges. Right. Well, Steve, thanks for all your work on this so far. And, and thanks for getting on the phone to talk about it. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Sorry about uh, driving in my car while talking to you. I hope it was okay. <laughs> well, we're happy just to have you. Thanks. <laughs> all right, Steve. We'll talk to you soon. And that's it for this episode of Rolling Stone Music Now. If you like what you heard, please leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.